Hello, and welcome to Making the Rounds, a podcast by the American Medical Association. Today's episode is part of our Health IT series from the AMA MSS Committee on Health Information Technology. I'm one of your hosts, Matthew Swanson, and I'm a medical student at the Frank H. Netter MD School of Medicine. Today, we're joined by Dr. Megan Ranney, an emergency medicine physician, the Associate Dean of Strategy and Innovation for the School of Public Health at Brown, and the founding director of the Brown Lifespan Center for Digital Health. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Ranny. Thanks for having me on. So we wanted to start this off, how we start off all of our episodes, by asking you, how are you involved in the health IT space and what are you currently working on? So I've been involved in the health IT space really around the area of digital health for, oh gosh, well over a decade now. Um, Most of my work is around the development proof of concept and dissemination of digital health tools that help improve uh, outcomes for vulnerable populations, particularly around violence and behavioral health. I also run our Brown Lifespan Center for Digital Health, which does a wide range of things, um, ranging from working with wearables to work with social media um, to uh, work with uh, medication compliance. Um, but my own work is mostly around kind of that patient-facing intervention space. We can pivot directly then. Perfectly introduces our next question, which is, what do you foresee as the impact of your work and uh, have you experienced any challenges? So many challenges. Um, as someone who is both a researcher and someone who tries to implement um, in the real world, uh, you know, one thing about technology is that it is ever-changing and ever full of unexpected difficulties or blocks, but it also provides a lot of opportunity that wouldn't be there without technology. So for me, where the impact of my work is, is really in showing that we can do things. I love doing first-in-class proof of concept. Hey, look, we can use digital health effectively to help reduce the effects of cyberbullying on kids across the country. We can use uh, social media tools um, to identify kids who are at risk of mental health crises. We can develop predictive analytics that allow us to integrate um, programs for to reduce the risk of opioid overdose for emergency physicians who are otherwise cognitively overloaded and not noticing some of the subtle warning signs that are out there. I love doing that kind of work and showing that things can be done and then leaving it to my commercial partners to take stuff the rest of the way. Some of the blockers are that tech changes, security requirements change, operating systems change, and funding changes. You know, a lot of my work is funded either by federal funders or by foundations or through industry partnerships. Um, Actual healthcare systems and insurers are constantly changing what they're interested in funding. And so trying to kind of chase that, not in a way that you let the funding lead you, but rather in a way that recognizes that you need to have money if you want to do the work, um, is one of the perennial challenges, I think, of any innovator. This podcast is really tailored towards medical students. So I don't know how many medical students really aware of the amount of the expansive questions that you can ask with digital health. And, uh, you know, it's great to have people like you on here that really can demonstrate what, what you can do with this in this, in this sector. Um, you know, another challenge, especially this past year, is it was COVID and is currently COVID. And how would you say that it's impacted your work? I think the biggest thing about COVID is that it demonstrated in real time 
what many of us have been evangelizing for years, which is that technology can be used effectively to provide really high quality care, but it has to be done thoughtfully and with an attention to evidence, to equity, and to ethics. And I think we saw some great examples of the use of digital health during COVID because people just didn't have a choice. We also saw some really bad examples where digital health technologies worsened existing disparities, worsened access to high quality healthcare, uh, or um, really worsened access to preventive care in general, um, where we widened that gap um, between what we should be doing and what we're actually providing. Uh, so I see COVID as having been both an opportunity and a war uh, COVID pandemic as being both an opportunity and a warning sign um, of what's possible, but also of the dangerous side of what's possible um, if we don't pay attention to making sure that our tools are accessible to people who don't have broadband, accessible to people for whom English is not a first language or who may not be literate or have good um, numeric literacy, um, if we don't ensure that our digital health products take care of the full spectrum of health. Uh, it's not just about having a telehealth visit where you see your doc. It's also about remote monitoring or about continuous intervention programs that help patients achieve the health that they're going for. So I think it, it, it opened a lot of doors, um, but now it's up to us to walk through them and to do so in a way that has that commitment to the things that we care about as physicians, which is, you know, first do no harm, make sure that what we're doing is evidence-based, make sure that we're doing things that advance the health of all, not just of a select group of paying few. Making sure that no one's forgotten and the shift to more digital means in providing care is uh, so important and we can't lose sight of that. So thanks for, you know, making sure that it's not forgotten. Uh, to shift gears now and talk a little bit more about your specific interest, um, we've seen that it focuses on using digital health to increase patients' adherence to treatment plans. And I'm thinking specifically about uh, one of your papers entitled Development of an Integrated Digital Health Intervention to Promote Engagement in and Adherence to Medication for Opioid Use Disorder. How effective do you think this technique is? And do you think it would have broad appeal to other diseases? So we are in the midst of testing it. We're actually just about to start a, a new large national study of that program. Um, which will help me tell you actually how effective it is. Our preliminary evidence says it's really feasible. Patients like it, but it doesn't tell me if it works or not. So I would say, give me a year or so, and I will tell you exactly how effective it is. I have trouble believing that it won't be just as effective as what we currently do, which is a lot of nothing, right? It's got to be better than nothing. Um, but the question is, who is it better for, and how can we make it better for more people um, than what we currently do? That sounds great. Yeah. Look forward to reading more and learning more about it uh, in a year. And everyone that's listening today, you, you heard it here first. Your, <laughs> your eyes in the literature. Stay tuned. Right? Um, so you also do a lot of work with machine learning. How important do you think machine learning will be to the future of medicine? And where do you see it having the biggest impact? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, I think the potential for machine learning is endless, but also with a qualification. So I think, um, you know, the beauty of machine learning is that it allows us to use these really big data sources um, in a way that wouldn't be possible if we were counting on traditional statistical techniques, much less on kind of our qualitative ability to synthesize data in real time. 
the danger is that machine learning is only as good as the data that it's used on and the theoretical basis in which you create the questions. If you have a large enough data set, you can show statistical significance for just about anything. That doesn't mean it's clinically significant and it doesn't mean it's real. And so I think there's a lot of potential for us using some forms of machine learning to help us identify who's at highest risk of disease, to help us uh, identify who's most likely to do well with a certain treatment, um, to help us not miss warning signs, like that example I gave about helping ER docs to identify who's at risk for opioid uh, future opioid overdose. Um, but we got to do it well. And the last thing I'm going to say there, you're noting a theme in what I talk about, is that we also have to make sure we pay attention to equity. Um, there have been a bunch of studies, including by a fellow emergency physician, Ziad Obermeyer, showing the degree to which existing algorithms propagate um, racial and ethnic disparities in our healthcare system. And uh, machine learning will only make that worse if it's not done well. What I don't think machine learning is ever going to do is completely substitute for the patient-physician relationship. Our job as physicians or as other healthcare providers is going to become higher level. I see the machine learning as helping to synthesize data, as helping to um, maintain uh, contact with patients in between visits, but then to alert when you need that kind of stepping up of care uh, into a physician's hands or a nurse's or a community health worker. Um, it shouldn't substitute for human contact. That humanism in medicine is such a core part of what we do. I see the biggest potential for machine learning being where it augments our ability to provide that humanism. I want to continue with these, these hard-hitting questions and uh, ask you about another hot topic issue, medical misinformation. Mm. Um, what do you think individual physicians, students, and healthcare workers can do to combat this? And what should the healthcare system as a whole be doing to combat this issue? Oh, goodness. We could talk about this one for a whole podcast. <laughs> um, you know, the issue of misinformation is not new. Um, you can go back to the 1600s and find early stories about snake oil salesmen and hucksters in, in medicine. Um, but it has been really uh, dramatically, the impact of misinformation has dramatically increased during the COVID pandemic. Um, and that's largely due to social media. Uh, it's also due to funding of some really bad actors out there um, who propagate this stuff, who've created a business model out of creating and disseminating frank lies, as well as twisted truths. Um, what can medical students do about it? I mean, the first thing is to be aware of it, just to be aware that it's out there and to understand the basic tips and tricks for how to combat it. Basic um, concepts around those same motivational interviewing skills that you learn when you're learning how to counsel someone about risky drinking or smoking cessation. Those are the same skills that you want to use when you're talking to someone who's fallen victim to misinformation. Uh, you know, finding out how motivated they are to change, giving feedback, sharing facts, helping to move them from being totally unaware that it's a lie to having a little bit of insight into the fact that maybe the sources that they're reading are not the most trustworthy. There's also a big role for you as medical students in sharing truth. Um, and there are some nice studies out there that show that when we share truth in a way that's engaging and persistent and not critical and not demeaning, that we can change um, um, hearts and minds. 
And then the third thing is just to get involved, get involved with peers or mentors, faculty who are out there kind of studying how best to combat this. Get involved with the AMA, who's been such a strong voice um, against misinformation. This is going to be a problem that I think we're going to be dealing with for a while. Uh, so we really need kind of all hands on deck um, to help overcome it. This is a call to action right there. Everyone that's listening, hopefully that empowers, uh, I know it at least empowers me. So but thanks for sharing <laughs> that. Dr. Um, now, as a future physician, how do you see the future of health information technology in 10 to 15 years when I'm practicing? I can hypothesize where I think it's going to be, but if you had told me, I'm a little further out, so let's see. I graduated from med school not quite 20 years ago, a little over 15, a little over 15 years ago. There were no smartphones. There was barely Facebook, and it was like limited to if you had a college account. There was no Twitter. There was certainly no TikTok. There were no chatbots. If you had told me in 2004 that any of those things were going to be where I was going to spend my life, I would have been like, what are you talking about? That sounds like science fiction. When I started doing work with text messaging back uh, just a couple years after I graduated from med school, that was so cutting edge. And I'll say it still has a lot of value. Um, so looking forwards 15 years, I think there's some aspect of what we're currently doing is still going to be around. I think we'll still be using text messaging. We'll probably still be using apps. I'm sure we're still going to be using electronic medical records, as painful as they are. Hopefully, they'll be better by then. I think we're going to have a lot more predictive algorithms that are well-validated to help us make clinical decisions. But I think there's going to be whole new realms of work. I think virtual reality um, is one that a lot of us are starting to think about how it's going to influence our ability to provide treatments. We're going to see a lot more digital therapeutics. We're going to see a lot more around wearable sensors um, that can range the gamut between providing us with lab values uh, through um, providing biometric data. Um, and I think there's going to be things that we can't even imagine yet that are going to develop in the next 10 years. And I hope that some of you guys help, guys and gals, uh, help lead it. Um, I, I'm, I'm excited to see how we create new forms of technology that can change the way we deliver care. And that's going to be up to a lot of you. That's really exciting, you know, and uh, just to talk to some of my peers out there, if you're not thinking about, you know, digital health and some of these opportunities now, then get ahead of the curve and start thinking about it because uh, this is what the future, this is what we hear time and time again from everyone that we're, that we're interviewing. This is what the future is going to look like. Um, now, just to wrap everything up, I really enjoyed talking with you today and learning from you, but if, do you have any uh, channels where people can connect with you uh, and follow your work? Absolutely. So I am most prolific on Twitter, where it is at Megan Ranny, all one word. So first name, last name. Uh, I do have Instagram, although I post very rarely. And then you can check out our Center for Digital Health at, at Brown. Uh, it's digital digitalhealth.med.brown.edu. We have seminar series that are open to the public. So any of you are welcome to join us. Um, would love to hear from you. Uh, and I know many of you are already med students. So come do residency here at Brown. Uh, for those who are listening who are yet to be med students, apply here. <laughs> Definitely. You just earned your, your newest follower in me. Aww. So 
definitely. Um, we'll be sure to check that out and to continue to check it out, in, you know, over the coming year to see what happens with that paper we talked about earlier. Well, everyone, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. And thank you for your time today, Dr. Rani. This has been Making the Rounds, a podcast by the American Medical Association. You can subscribe to Making the Rounds and other great AMA podcasts wherever you listen to yours. Or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.